0: We're in our second week of the series. We're calling Resolutions for the Soul. And we're working our way through our mission statement. And, and uh, do you guys remember what that is? Win, commit, grow. And what's the new one? Go. All right, let's do that like we mean it, like we're, we're here at church, like we're, we're here to worship God. So what's our mission statement? Win, commit, grow, go. All right, awesome. That's what I, that's what I like to hear. All right, so... So last week we talked about the win part, right? John was up here talking what, what does a win look like when it comes to the Huntsville Christian Church and the and the mission statement. And this week we're gonna be really focusing on on the on the commit part of that. And and I got to thinking, you know, this this whole New Year's thing and this and I got to thinking about resolutions and, and just how time goes by so quickly. And 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 I mean I feel like time goes by even, even quicker. And quicker, the older that I get and and, and now we find ourselves we 're at the beginning of another year, two thousand and thirteen I know we 're in the second week, but it's like we 're already like in the second week of two thousand and thirteen it, it feels like New year's was like weeks ago right and and, and we 've experienced um, some pretty cool things around here at at HEC and 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 especially in the last three years and um, I know it 's already been a year and a half. Uh, since this congregation invited me to be the the associate minister, and and um, it's almost been two years ago that, that John Lancaster preached his first sermon up here as the new the new senior minister of Huntsville Christian Church, and and um and I know he was here for three years before that as the family and, and youth minister, and and uh, but it's it's like it's already been that long, and it doesn't feel that long, does it? It's it's interesting because as um because in time. Because in the time that John has been here, uh, he has really challenged us, in his think- in his, in, challenged us in our thinking. Wouldn't you say so? And, and uh, he has really challenged us not only in our thinking, but the way, in the way that we reach out to our community. And I know it, there have been times, it's, it's crazy, me, me and Lorna have sat in a staff meeting or, or in our worship planning meetings. And we've kind of had to be that voice of reasoning because he's challenged us so much. We're like, John, you can't do that in church. And he's like... Uh, why not? And so, and so it's been interesting and, and fun at times for us. Um, um, but do you guys remember almost two years ago, John stood up here on this stage and challenged this congregation to do five things? Do you guys remember those things? And, and, and if you've forgotten those or you weren't here, or you're still pretty new to, to the church. Um, I'm going to remind you of those things. But, but John challenged us to do these things. Here at a minimal, at the very least, he said, I challenge you guys to do one hour of time spent in the Word, one hour a week reading your Bible. He said, I challenge you one hour a week in prayer, one hour a week talking to God. He said, I, I, I need you guys doing one hour of service. So, whether that, that's tutoring kids out of school or helping old ladies cross the street, he's like, I need you doing one hour of service a week. I, I need you doing one hour of worship. So, come into church every week or, or go into a Bible study. And, and he says, I, I need you in one hour of fellowship as well. He said, in order to, to, to go from spiritual milk to spiritual meat, th- these things that, that we just listed here, I need you doing those things in your life at the very minimum. A, a fully devoted and committed follower of Christ does those things minimally. It's been over a year since John stood up here and, and spoke those words and, uh, to you, and, and there's been a lot of changes that have happened some hard and some easy, but, we've, but we're, we're, we're experiencing them and we're on a journey. But, these, but those same expectations still remain the same today. And, and today, maybe you're sitting here saying, I haven't done those things. I was here. John was here. I, I, I still haven't done those things. And, and maybe, you're like, maybe you're up here saying, Andy, you're crazy. I've got school. I've got to go to work. I've got to fix the house. I've got to take down the Christmas decorations. I've, I've got to watch the football game. I've got to fix the car. Uh, I've got to insert favorite reality TV show every week. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't have time to do those things. But, but uh, And today, this morning, I believe we can learn a lot about commitment and what it looks like in our lives in the life of Huntsville Christian Church from a guy in the Old Testament, in the book of Nehemiah, if you have your Bibles, and I, I really hope you guys have your Bibles today, turn to the book of, me, book of Nehemiah in chapter 1. There's a guy there, his name's Nehemiah, and he faced a daunting task. A task that seemed impossible to accomplish, and yet he was successful. And if we're going to be successful in filling our commitment to do these things outlined, outlined by John, perhaps we can learn a few things from Nehemiah. Uh, maybe you know the story and, and maybe you don't, but, but Nehemiah was, was of the tribe of Judah. He, he was a Jew and true to his word, God had allowed the Jewish nation to be taken into captivity because of their rebellion. And so they had come under the captivity of, of the Babylonians and, and over time, world power shifted and the Persians took over and, and 4, in 44.6 in BC. 4, our story BC. Our story begins. Artaxerxes, the, the king of Persia, has, has been on the throne for 20 years when we pick up the story. Nehemiah, who was one of the captives, who was hauled off into captivity from Judah, is serving in the king's court. And, and by captivity standards, he's living a pretty good life. I mean, he was the cupbearer. And, and So he was the guy that, that carried the king's wine. Um, and he was the one who tasted it and tested it. For poison, so the, so the king wouldn't um, be killed um, from poisoning. And I guess by captivity standards, that was a pretty good job. So Nehemiah's, so Nehemiah's life is pretty good. Um, but there had been a, a remnant of the Jews left behind in Jerusalem. And when it was destroyed and captured, some of those people were left behind. And so we pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2. Nehemiah, Nehemiah's brother comes into town with, with some of his friends. The Bible says that he asks for a report. How are the brethren doing? And how is my, home in, my, home, my hometown? And in this one question, we learn the principle, and I think we can all do well to, to embrace ourselves in this, that, ne- that Nehemiah is tuned into the world around him. Nehemiah wanted to know what was going on out in the world. And yes, his life was good there in captivity and in, in the king's courts. And yes, things weren't, weren't bad as captivity goes. But he still wanted to know what was happening out in the real world. And I think too often, as Christians, we find ourselves hiding from the realities of the world. Perhaps our heads buried in the sand out of fear or perhaps hidden in the clouds. But regardless, we don't really want to know. See, Nehemiah had to know. He, he had to know the, the truth because he already knew. The Babylonians already destroyed the city of Jerusalem and they left a very small remnant of people there. How could he not expect anything but a bad report? I wonder sometimes we as Christians, you know, we, we quote scripture. We say, well the, well, the Bible says I'm supposed to come out from among them and, and be separate. The Bible says I'm supposed to be pure. So I don't really want to know what's, what's going on out there. I'm just going to keep that out there and, and live my life as it is here in my little concoud. Others of us just do life with Jesus, right? Oh, life with Jesus is so good that the, 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 uh, the ch- the, we breathe purified air and, and, and I come to church every single week. Uh, and, and some of you guys are in the small group and, and you're, you're all right in the comfort of your small group, right? I, I don't have to worry about any of those things in the world because of my small group. And we live our lives isolated from the rest of the world. And today I want you to know Something. That is not the way you are called to live your life as a Christian. You were never called to live your life in a vacuum. Jesus did all those things that I just told you. He, he regularly studied scripture. The Bible says he, he talked often with his heavenly father. He, he was a prayer warrior. And on top of all that, we know that he was part of a small group. He had 12 other guys that met every week. In, in fact, they met every single day. And, and they, walked, they, they, they walked around the countryside with the small group, right? They didn't just stay in their home. Jesus did all those things. We need to be separate. We need to be different than the world. God knows there are too many people that, that, that claim the name of Christianity who aren't much different than the world they live in. God knows we need to study the word of God more than we do. We need to pray more often than we do. But the bod- And that's the bottom line. As good as those things are, and we need to do those things, we were never called to live our lives in a vacuum. We need to know what's going on in the world around us. Philippians 2.15 says this, we are, we are to prove ourselves as blameless and innocent children above reproach. And then I, look at the rest of this verse. Don't just stop there. Look at the rest of the verse. Um, where do we prove ourselves? Where are we children of God above reproach? In the, midst, in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. I love that verse. And if we ever expect to live out the commitment part of the HCC mission statement, you're going to have to shine like stars. You're going to have to be a light to the world. You're going to have to, to be among them. Jesus rubbed elbows with the sinners, right? He, he broke bread with the brokenhearted. He hung out with people who were hypocrites. He was part of the, the world's fabric, and yet the Bible is clear that he stood head and shoulders above, above that, and we have a responsibility to do the same. Light in a dark world. The second thing we learn is, is that, is that he, Nehemiah loved people. He loved people. When Nehemiah heard the, heard the report from his brothers and, and, and friends, in verse 4, the Bible says that he sat down and wept and mourned for days. It's very clear uh, that his feelings for this people was not just one of, of affinity. Yes, it's true. He was, he was blood-related to them. Uh, yes, it's true. He, in the essence, he was, you know, related to to them, um, but there's something more that he felt about these people, uh, stronger, stronger than just being friends with them. And, and what it was is it was a genuine love for them. I think there are, are times when, uh, when we get it as a church. I think there, sometimes we are wired into the world and, and people become aware of things that are going on. People who are hungry, people who are, are homeless, um, there, there's evil going in on in our, our society. We're aware of those things. But, but what it causes in us is, is a, a whine a sometimes, right? Oh, that's terrible. Those people, they're homeless. That's so terrible. Oh, that's too bad. Oh, man, that's, that's just wrong. That's, that's our response sometimes. But, but what would happen if we loved people? if our hearts were broken as Nehemiah's was, to the point where he wept for days uh, uh, over these people in in the report that he had heard. I think that our church, uh, we need to love people, not just our family and friends. That's easy. Of course we love them, but what about a total stranger? Is it possible for you to love someone you've never ever met in your life before until this moment? Because because maybe of their circumstances, because of their sin, because of their losses, whatever it may be. It, it breaks your heart to the point of weeping and mourning. Jesus, the Bible says, cried over the city of Jerusalem. He hadn't met every single person in, in there, and, and yet his heart ached for their salvation. Church, we have to love people. If we are to commit to a life of following Jesus, we must love people. Third thing we learned is that after he had heard the bad news and he, and he had wept for days, the Bible says in verse five, 5 and 6 that Nehemiah was not paralyzed by the plight of his people and he began to fast and pray. I think it's important for you to hear that. He, was, he, he wasn't paralyzed by fear. He, he wasn't paralyzed and overwhelmed with what he had seen. The Bible says he apparently after one point Nehemiah went from mourning and weeping and rolling over onto his knees and began to pray for these people. How many times have I found myself praying, going through the motions? We just sang about that this morning. Do you have stock prayers that you offer? Do you do you say the right things whenever you're going to pray? Have you ever had somebody ask you to pray for them? And you said you would and you never got around to it? Or maybe you're like me and there are times when somebody asks you to pray for them and you've done this and as soon as you walk away and you're like, God, uh, uh, be with this person. Um, you know, you mumble something under your breath. Oh God, please help them. Whatever it is they're going through, whatever, whatever their need is, and I, I know you can do it. And that's it. That's my prayer. I wonder what would happen if you knew that your prayer, not the church's prayers, not someone else's prayers, but your prayer was the difference between your child's success and failure, between your neighbor's addictions and freedoms, between home ownership and homelessness, between peace and turmoil, between salvation and damnation to the world, of of all it hinges on on, is your prayer. I wonder if you might pray a little bit differently if you thought about that. And I wonder if you might pray a little bit more often. We have to love people enough to pray for them. The way God taught us to pray. The way that he wants us to pray. James 5.16 says this, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is is powerful and effective. I think the point I want you to hear today is that well, well, prayer—it's good for you, and it's—and uh, if we are to live the life of a commit of, of commitment to God, then you and I are going to have to become righteous prayer warriors. And the fourth thing that we learn from Nehemiah is that he confessed his sin. Verses six and seven in chapter one says he. He, prays for his people. he prayed for his people, and the Bible says he confessed his sin to God. In fact, he's apologetic on behalf of himself and in the, in, in the entire nation of Israel. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't try to sweep it under the carpet. He confesses the sin of breaking God's commandment and breaking appointments with God. Nehemiah says, My people have sinned. My father, my father has sinned. And then he says, I have sinned against you, Lord. In a world where we've got to find somebody to blame, and it's surely not going to be me, we desperately need people, men and women, who will stand up and say, I did it. I confessed, I sinned, this is my responsibility, I did it. James chapter 5 is that we are to confess our sins so that so that times of healing may come. I wonder what would happen if, if the culture would. This culture would come to Huntsville Christian Church was was people would come here and and, and there was a culture of one of confession. A place where anybody, anyone and everyone could confess anything and everything. The most heinous of crimes could be confessed here, free of judgment. And and in this atmosphere of confession and restoration and forgiveness and, and, and healing, if we had that atmosphere of confession, we would not have an empty seat in this building. You wouldn't be able to get enough people in here. The place would be full. And, and we would, in fact, be a church of fully committed people to Jesus and his church. The fifth thing we learn, Nehemiah remembered God God's promises. If you look at verse 9, the Bible says that Nehemiah reminded God, listen God, you, you said if, if we sinned against you that, that you would scatter us. But in verse 9 it says, if we return to you and obey you, that you would gather us in from the farthest regions of the earth and universe. God, you promised that you would, you would gather us in, no matter how hard we tried to run from you, or how far we ran from you, or, or how badly we acted towards you. You promised you would bring us all back together again. And I have to say that, that churches too, too often become a place of, of judgment. A place where we render certain decisions based on certain people, on certain sins, on certain circumstances. That is beyond repair. Th- that person is lost. That's a lost cause. That sin's beyond forgiveness. There's no way. How, how can we possibly stamp out hunger and homelessness in, in Huntsville and in the Tennessee Valley? It's a lost cause. And so often we get that attitude. I want you to know that God, the God I serve is the God of lost causes. The reality is, is, is that, that you're listening to a lost cause right now. I suppose if you knew some of the things I've done in my life and heard some of the things I've said, if you knew some of the things that, that have happened to me, if you knew those things, But the God I serve is the same God that rescued a man who ran around a cemetery naked, possessed by demons, scaring people. And Jesus saved him and liberated him and made him whole. And and if he can do that, he can save me. A lost cause. He He can save you, the lost cause. And all those lost causes around you and in your sphere of influence. Six, he was bold. Nehemiah was bold. If you go to chapter two, we learn a, a great lesson here. In chapter two, verses two through eight, when Nehemiah had heard all the bad news, he had prayed, he had fasted, he had mourned, He had, he had reminded God of the promises in the, uh, in the, of what the Bible says, and, and he went into the, the Bible says that Nehemiah went into the king's presence and, and his fate in his, with his sad face. And you have to understand back then, if you went into the king's presence with a sad face, that was punishable by death. You were not allowed to bum the king out. It was like strictly prohibited. The Bible says that Artaxerxes asked Nehemiah, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? Nehemiah's reply in chapter 2, verse 3, why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king replies, what is it you want? And Nehemiah asks, please let me go home and rebuild the walls and rebuild the gates. The king says, okay, how long will you be gone? Nehemiah gives him a time and, and, and says, oh, and by the way, king, thank you for letting me go home. Um, but could you, could you send me with a, with a letter of safe passage so I don't have to be fighting the whole way to Jerusalem? Done. You can have a letter of safe passage. Oh, and there's one more thing, king. And he asked for a letter to the keeper of the forest to provide him with with lumber so that they could rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. Nehemiah was bold. He went for the whole enchilada, right? It's time that the church stood up, that we set our timidity, we set aside our timidity, and we begin to live our lives in boldness. It's one thing to invite your friends to Christmas Eve service. It's another to sit down with them and confront them with the reality that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And if you don't know him, I want, you to, I, want to help, I want to help you find him. It's one thing for you to go out and give money to a charity so they can feed the hungry. It's another to go to the park and find people to go, to go feed, to feed them and sit with them and love and encourage them and talk with them about the relationship with God. It's too easy to go to Chick-fil-A or a Hobby Lobby and support them on a day set aside for a said cause. But it's another to go and talk in love on someone who struggles with homosexuality or talk to and in, in love on a lonely girl who is considering having an abortion because her boyfriend is pressuring her to do so. But all those things require boldness. It's time for the church to strip away the timidity that we've lived our lives with and stand up and step out. Nehemiah did that. So in verses 12 through 16, 16, he's allowed to go back home. And we learn that he's assessed, he's assessed the needs. Nehemiah did not ride back into Jerusalem. The Bible says that he came back to Jerusalem and he slipped out in the cover of darkness. No one else knew to consider what it is that, the, that, what it is that needs to be done. We don't, we don't need another study. We don't need another, another survey. We need to look into the sphere of our influence. What are the needs? What are the things that you can do? What are the assets that you have? What are the abilities that you have? What are the, the gifts that, that God has given you? Match those up and, and you'll be able to identify the holy disconnect that God has placed in your heart. I think you need, you need to do an assessment of your own life. What do I bring to the table? If you If you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, you need to get some help for that. I encourage you, you get with your elder this week or talk with me after church. We can help you discover what your spiritual gifts are. But take a look of what you have and what God has blessed you with. How do you plug those in and boldly use them to reverse the trend of Satan killing the world in which we live in? If you, were he, if, you're, if you were here to do that, we would know, we would know exactly what the, the life of a committed follower of Jesus looks like, if, of Jesus and the church. Number eight, Nehemiah cast the vision of the people and they caught it. It's exciting because Nehemiah, once he's assessed what needs to be done in chapters 2 verse 17, Nehemiah says, come let us rebuild the wall in Jerusalem and we will no, be, no longer be in Disgrace. I also, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and when the king, and, and what the king had said to me. The Bible says that, that when they heard it, they said, let us arise and let us build, and they put their hands to the good work. John, is ca- John has cast a vision for us. Our elders ha- have said, this is what God has called us to do. And now we're saying to all of you, it's time for us to rise up and put our hands to the good work. What would happen if we caught that vision? We'd end up with a city full of committed followers of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. But, but too often, people view the church as an institution. It's a place you go to, to get taken care of. If you're, if you're a Christ follower today, if, if you call this church your home, guys, you are the church. Church is not some institution. You are the church. What's God called you to do within your sphere of influence? You see, the world needs Jesus just like those folks needed, needed their, that wall. We need our neighbors to, to be transformed. They need Jesus. That's not the church's job, though. It's yours and it's mine. Number nine, Nehemiah encountered resistance. It's an inevitable. When you decide to become that committed to God in his kingdom, you will have people resist you. Satan's not going to stand by and say, no problem, Huntsville Christian Church. You guys go out there. You make a stronghold for this city and this community. You guys go. Satan's not doing that without resistance. The Bible says that even during the time of rebuilding, the, the, the walls, his life was threatened. They were going to kill Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, for a period of time, um, while the people were working on the walls, they had one hand on their swords or spears, and in the other they were working. There's going to to be people who take shots at us for trying to transform our city and towns and neighborhoods into a stronghold for the kingdom of God. But it only happens with committed followers of Jesus Christ. We're going to have to be prepared to continue to work, to, to not be afraid during difficult times to continue working with one hand and perhaps defending with the other. We will meet resistance, but we cannot be deterred. Tenth, and finally, he got the job done. Chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. The wall was completed in 52 days. When all of, the, when all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God. In 52 days, they rebuilt the walls and rebuilt the gates of Jerusalem. In 52 days, they accomplished the the seemingly impossible task that was put before them. The goal for Huntsville Christian Church is not to have the largest church here. The reality is that we wouldn't have enough room for them. The reality is that, that people who are are committed to living a life for Jesus and for his kingdom and, and his church will not be a part of this church. They'll worship someplace else and that's okay. Our purpose is to turn the people's hearts of Huntsville and the surrounding communities back to God and I hope you buy into that purpose. I'm all in. It. It's a phrase that can be heard when playing the game Texas Hold'em. And and in church, I don't expect everyone to know what that that means. But in the the game of Texas Hold'em, there comes a time in the game when a person pushes all their chips to the center of the table and risking everything to win it all, that's all in. The Bible is filled with examples of men and women who practice all-in obedience. Peter literally jumped out of the boat in obedience. And jumped in and, and jumped in and walked on the water. The Ethiopian businessman paused the urgency of his business trip for the urgency of his salvation. A young boy gave, gave every one of his five loaves of bread and two fishes so that Jesus could feed the masses. A man humbled himself and, and allowed himself to be lowered through the roof of a house so that he could encounter Jesus. And be healed. All in obedience. A man who gave up his home so Jesus, so that Jesus, when he died, would have a place to rise from. Paul changed careers, also he could be used by God to accomplish this great vision. When Julius Caesar and his army landed in the, on the shores of Britain, history records they, they climbed up the cliffs of Dover looked back down on their boats that they had set on fire, the very boats they had used to cross the channel. They burned them, and in that moment, said a message to one another and to the rest of the world. We will not retreat. We must win. The the commitment that we make to be all in when it comes to following Jesus, no matter the cost, is going to require all of us working together, shoulder to shoulder, And, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do this. We will not retreat. We must win. Let us pray. Heavenly Father God, God, we thank you so much for uh, the words we read in Nehemiah and, and, and the things that we can learn from being a committed follower of Jesus. God, I thank you for, for, for this church and I thank you for the heart of its people that, that want to be a part of a community that wants to reach a lost world. And God, I pray that, that through your Holy Spirit that we're able to do that. God, that we can go out there in boldness. And, and God, we, we thank you for, for saving us and, and loving us. And God, we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.